Amen. Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. When my kids were little, they used to love to try to scare me, but they really weren't very good at it, you know, because uh, they'd hide behind a door and they, they were noisy, right? They'd shuffle around and they whisper real loudly to each other. They start laughing or giggling, right? Uh, and, and so I never was surprised. I never really was caught off guard. Uh, I, on the other hand, could scare them all the time. Because, you know, they just lived in the moment. They were never thinking about what was around the corner. So I could always scare them. I could always get them. Now, the problem is now their minds work faster than mine. And so in our house, I have outlawed scaring. It's bad. You know, you can't scare anybody, right? Because I don't want to be scared. There's a principle in life, and it is this. If you know what's coming, you'll never be caught off guard. Right? If you know what's coming and you're anticipating it and expecting it, you will know how to respond. You can prepare your response ahead of time. That's actually a frequent theme in the New Testament. The apostles are consistently encouraging the church by saying, church, this is what's coming. Church, don't be surprised. Church, don't be caught off guard. Church, know how to respond. First Peter chapter 4, Peter told the church, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Church, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Be ready. Second Timothy chapter three, Paul picks up that same theme with the church. And he says, Timothy, you need to remind the church Don't be surprised by the darkness that's surrounding you. Read with me again, chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, But realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Church, we live in dark times. You say, no, 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 Brian, you misread that. Paul said, in the last days. In the last days. Well, we actually are in the last days. From a biblical perspective, in terms of God's redemptive history, these are the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us. In fact, the first sermon that was ever preached by the church Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he quoted Joel chapter 2, where Joel was talking about the last days, and Peter said, these are those days. Now today isn't all of those days, but it is a part of those days, and what the church gradually discovered was that the last days began when the Son of God took on human flesh. And those last days would continue until the Son of God returned to establish his kingdom. And the church anticipated that it would happen immediately, that the Son would return immediately. And so they were constantly writing, the end is near, the the Son is about to return, it's going to happen. And they realized that, in fact, these were the last days and he could return at any moment, but the church doesn't know when that will be. And so now we are waiting in the last days. And nothing has to occur in the prophetic course of history before Jesus Christ returns and takes his church and sets up, in a sense, that final chapter of the last days. So church, right now, we are living in the last days. And Paul describes for Timothy what the last days are going to look like. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these." And Paul's not saying that every person will display all of these characteristics or that every person will uh, equally display these or that in every age you will see all of these things at the same level. But he's saying, generally speaking, this is what you should expect in the last days. And notice the first characteristic that he gives. He says, men and women you don't escape. He means mankind, right? Men and women, mankind will be fundamentally lovers of self. They're going to love themselves more than they love anything else, including God. Now, a few months ago, uh, my daughter played a song for me. It was by Megan Trainer, and the chorus goes like this. If I were you, I would want to be me too, right? And, the, and since it's the chorus, she just kept singing it, right? If I were you, I'd want to be me too. I'd want to be me too. I'd want to be me too. And I said, enjoy. So that's a terrible song. That's horrible. But then I had to step back and acknowledge that the same song, in a sense, was really uh, being sung when I was her age also, uh, Whitney Houston saying a song. He says, learning to love yourself. Well, that's the greatest love of all. Right? And Whitney was not the first to record this song. It was recorded back in 1977. In 77, it rose to number two in the charts. So in 85, Whitney re-recorded it and it became number one. Right? Number one song in the United States of America. In my daughter's day, men and women are self-absorbed, love self. In my day, Men and women were self-absorbed. They just loved self. But I think we do have to acknowledge that in our country, self-absorption is, is growing even greater. There is a, a psychological index. It's called the, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. <laughs> There's actually a thing. It's the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. It measures how narcissistic we are, how really deeply self-centered we are. Uh, individually, and if we look at the trends as a nation, you know what? The narcissistic personality inventory is on the rise. People are becoming more and more and more self-centered. And all of these characteristics that Paul lists are basically the product of life that's centered on self. Men, men and women, will be lovers of self, lovers of, of money as well. They will be boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal. They will hate what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. And notice the final one. He says, they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will love anything and everything but God. They will do all they can to replace God. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1. He said, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Literally, what Paul said is this. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. It's actually not a lie. The translation should read, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. What is the lie? Well, the lie he's talking about is the first lie, which is Satan's lie, where he said, you can be God. You don't need God. 
You can be your own God. You can replace God. You can find life and fulfillment and satisfaction. Actually, all that you were designed to be when you look at yourself for yourself. That is the lie. And all of these other characteristics flow from the lie. Now, what's most startling, I think, in my mind, is that Paul is telling Timothy, this self-absorption is going to infiltrate even the church. It's going to come into the church from Satan to destroy the church. Read with me in verse 6. He says, For among them are those who who enter into households and captivate idle women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly also was. Now, the point of Paul's uh, obtuse illustration is this. Satan's going to try to destroy the church. And there have always been spiritual charlatans that try to infiltrate the church. He's not saying that uh, women alone are idle and immoral or that men alone are trying to deceive. He's using an illustration from Timothy's day about what's happening in the church in Timothy's day, that there are people who are particularly vulnerable to Satan's deceit and that there are false teachers in Timothy's day who are just like Janus and Jambres. If you've never heard of Janus and Jambres, they're only mentioned here in the New Testament. But according to Jewish tradition, these are the names of uh, Pharaoh's magicians that opposed Moses. Pharaoh's magicians who tried to imitate what Moses was doing in the miracles that demonstrated the power of God so that they could deceive the people of God that the gods of Egypt were just as powerful or more powerful than the God of Moses, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And what Paul says is actually what occurred in Moses' day. Eventually, their folly was exposed. But church, don't be surprised. The false teachers even try to infiltrate the church to get the church to focus on self and to be self-absorbed. Church, we live in dark times, but the times have always been dark. The times have actually always been dark. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is described as uh, the proto-evangelion. That means the the, the prototype of the gospel or the first uh, inkling we have of what the gospel would be all about. It reads like this. The Lord is speaking and he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, who is a physical manifestation of Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is what the Lord means. He says, what he means is this, there is going to be a battle. And the battle began at the very dawn of human history in the garden and it has been waged waged ever since. It's how we understand what history, human history, is all about. It's a battle between two kingdoms. Kingdom of darkness, represented by Satan and the serpent, and all of those who follow him. Fallen angels and people that the serpent is able to deceive. They will be the kingdom of darkness, and they will be in opposition to the kingdom of God. Which will be rescued by the seed of woman. That is, a man will be the one who finally stands up. And defeats the kingdom of darkness. But in defeating the kingdom of darkness, that is crushing the head of the Satan, he also will receive a bruise on his heel. Not a fatal blow that will last forever, but a bruise, that is the cross that Jesus Christ 
overcame through the resurrection. This is just a, a poetic foreshadowing of the very nature of the life that we live here on earth. It is the battle of two kingdoms, darkness and light, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And Satan hates us, and Satan wants to destroy us, and so he will do everything that he can inside the church and outside the church to destroy humankind. In particular, we're told in this verse that he wants to destroy the seed of woman, which is mankind in general, but specifically focused on Jesus Christ. He will be the seed who will come from Abraham, and from Abraham's offspring, who will be the man who is God's Messiah, God's anointed one, to crush the kingdom of darkness. And what you see, even in human history, is that Satan has always been trying to go specifically after that seed, Jesus. Let me illustrate. Fifth century BC, there was a a, a very wicked man. He was a highly placed governing official in the Persian Empire. His name was Haman. Haman was committed to the destruction of the Jewish people. Did he know that he was a tool of Satan? Probably not directly, but he was empowered by the spirit of the Antichrist, that is the one who is against God's Messiah, to destroy the seed. If he could destroy the Jewish people, no seed would come. He knew the promise had come to Eve and then through Abraham for the world through the Jewish people. And so what did he do? He tried to destroy them. He tried to destroy them. Now, the book of Esther is the book that contains that story. And Esther's a wonderful story about a young woman who had phenomenal courage, but it's actually a much bigger story. It's a story about God working behind the scenes through this, this beautiful and talented young woman who was fearful but stepped up in courage. But the point of the story is God is working to protect his promise to defeat the serpent. Later on in human history, The son was born for us. That is God's ruler, God's anointed one. And that announcement came all the way to the ears of an evil Idumean, Edomite king who was on the throne of the nation of Israel under Rome's authority, but he was not for God. He was for himself. And he got word that a son would be given. You know what he did? He tried to kill that child, but he didn't know specifically who that child was, and he didn't know exactly when that child was born, but he knew where he was born, so he sent his soldier and he said, kill every male child that is two years old and younger. Can you imagine? In this entire region around Bethlehem, every boy was yanked out of his home and slaughtered. Did Herod know that he was a tool of Satan? He Probably not consciously. But he was a tool of the adversary, the devil, who was trying to destroy God's plan to defeat him through that seed. And Paul wrote this final letter to Timothy, his last letter that he wrote from prison. Nero was the emperor, and Nero hated the church. Now, why Nero hated the church? Because he was a tool of Satan. Satan had failed in his attempt to destroy God's chosen seed. The seed had been resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. So what did Satan then direct his attention toward? The messengers. The messengers. To destroy the church. To possess the message of life and the message of defeat of Satan. So Nero, as a tool of Satan, tried to destroy the church. Roman historian Tacitus wrote, before killing the Christians, Nero used, the, used to amuse the, used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. 
kill the Christians, put the rest in fear so that they go underground and the message no longer spreads so that the kingdom of darkness cannot be defeated. Men and women, this has been Satan's plan all along and it continues to be his plan. He wants to destroy the church. He longs to destroy the messengers. It's always been dark. We live in dark times, but it's just gonna get darker. It's like, golly, Brian, you're really a bummer. You know, it's a home game weekend. I brought my parents to kind of see my church. And it was a big win over Tennessee. Which, hey, rah, rah, right? Let's, let's have a celebration weekend. You're such a bummer. Well, uh, you know, I'm not cynical. Actually, I'm not a cynical person. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty positive person, generally speaking. But I'm also a realist. And this is a fact. The world will just get darker before the light shines. I want you to turn with me to Matthew. Keep your place here. Mark it in 2 Timothy. And turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus came out of the temple, and he was going away with his disciples. Uh, when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you see, not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus was predicting the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and they said, well, can you tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and he said to them, see to it that no one misleads you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginnings of the birth pangs. So you're going to hear of all kinds of horrible things happening. But take heart, it will get worse. (laughs) That's basically what Jesus is saying. Uh, when my wife was uh, pregnant with Benjamin, nine months rolled around and she began to have contractions. And so she said, I'm having contractions. So I loaded her up and we went to the, the doctor's office and we walked in and she told the nurse, I'm, I'm starting to have contractions. And the nurse said, no, you're not, actually. No, you're not. We're like, well, we've actually, we've never done this before, but so how do you know? And uh, the nurse said, because Tristy's still smiling. <laughs> You're having Braxton Hicks contractions. I, I'd li- I don't even know who, who that guy is, but I'd like to look his name up, right? They're the contractions before the contractions, right? So we waited uh, about another day or two, and in the middle of the night, uh, my wife grabbed my arm and, and bruised me and just crushed me, and she said, now I'm having contractions. <laughs> and you know what? They got worse, right? They got more painful, and they came closer and closer and closer together. And Jesus is saying, let me give you an analogy that so many of you have seen in life. It's like birth pangs. You hear war of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and floods. Yeah, that's because you're in the end times. But as you get closer to the end of days, it will get more and more and more intense. And the battle that Satan will wage against the messengers of God's king will become more and more and more intense. Turn back to 2 Timothy with me, chapter 3 and verse 12. 
Paul says, Timothy, I have a promise for you to claim. It is this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus told the disciples the same thing. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This is just a general statement of truth. Again, the persecution can be more or less severe for some people in some places and during some times. Even Paul had periods of his life where the persecution against him was not as intense, periods of relative peace. But he's saying, generally speaking, you need to know that Satan hates the church, and so he will try to persecute the church in some form or some fashion. Now, I know as a pastor, I don't suffer like many pastors suffer in this world Right now, And some of you may say, you know, I'm not suffering persecution like others are, are suffering persecution in the world. But the general principle is true. You, you will. You will in some form or some fashion. And I know that there are some of you even now who have suffered persecution. I've talked to so many professors through the years who've, who've lived under the threat of not getting tenure or not having a paper published. If they come out publicly with their faith, if they announce that Jesus Christ is in fact more important to them than anything even their job. That may hinder their career. It's persecution. I've talked to many of you through the years who suffered persecution from family. Friends who have rejected you, family who have cut you off or being written out of an inheritance because you believe in Jesus Christ. And there's some of you who will suffer even more. We actually had an opportunity to pray for some of our new missionaries who are going out and they're going to uh, some places where... uh, There's great hostility against the church and against Christians. And they're consciously, knowingly taking risks for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, we need to be aware of what's happening in the world. Even if we live in a place that's relatively comfortable, we need to be aware. So I'd like to show you uh, just a a short video from Open Doors Ministries that kind of uh, illustrates what's happening in the world today. Open Doors is a wonderful ministry that serves the persecuted church. So short video, let's just watch for just a moment. Christian persecution is increasing. The scale and dynamics of Christian persecution has changed and grown drastically. Millions of Christians are persecuted for their faith worldwide, in more countries and in more ways than ever before. We've seen an unprecedented rise in persecution, especially in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa. Based on the raw data and recent global events, it will likely get worse. In 2016, Iraq has moved to number two on the list. Iraq has seen tens of thousands of Christians forced to flee their homes because of the terror of ISIS. Many have been displaced for over a year now, burdened with the struggle of daily living as they face an uncertain future. Eritrea, ranked number three, has had one of the most dramatic jumps in rank. Christians suffer intense persecution in all spheres of life. Believers face violence and imprisonment in horrific conditions, some being locked inside metal shipping containers. Uzbekistan, ranked at number 15, has one of the harshest dictatorships in Central Asia. Because of the constant pressure and surveillance, it is almost impossible for Christians to display or share their faith. We believe there is only one body of Christ. And when one part suffers, every part suffers. 
We hope you feel called to learn more and pray for the millions of believers around the world where persecution is a daily reality. The, the red on the map marks areas of the world where the, the persecution is most intense. But according to one estimate, one estimate um, 75% of the world's population lives in a place where uh, there's great hostility to Jesus Christ. 75% of the world. This last week, one of my closest friends from seminary came to visit me. Uh, he's, uh, he's now 71 years old. He's, uh, uh, he was a first-generation convert from Hinduism. He became a Christian in his, his teenage years, and he began serving Jesus from that point in time, and he suffered incredible persecution. In recent years, uh, the last couple of years, the, the government is, is very militant Hindu, and they're persecuting Christians and Muslims in, in, a, in a really strong way. Uh, we've tried to send some folks over there on short-term trips, and their visas have been denied, but uh, those who live there are under great persecution. But he, he indicated to me, he said, you know, they, they legally still can't fine us for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what, so what do they do? He said, he said they, they just beat us. Oh, okay, that's all. But he's lived with that his whole life. He's walked through villages and had stones uh, thrown at him for sharing uh, his faith. When he first became a believer, his family uh, completely disowned him, literally threw him out of the house and disinherited him. And that's, that's standard life where he lives. A few weeks before that, I had another uh, friend come visit me. He's a, a pastor of a house church in East Asia. If you can imagine this, uh, he went up to the building where they meet one day and uh, there were just locks and chains on the door. They couldn't get in. They couldn't worship. Can you imagine that? If you, you walked up this morning and there were, there were just locks on the door, you can't, you can't come in. You can't get in. There was no explanation, nothing posted, no word whatsoever. Just the building was locked up closed. They couldn't worship. And they go and try and find another place to worship. You know what? No one will rent from the, to them. Instead, he was called into the governing authorities, and they told him that you can't share the gospel anymore. Or else. Well, they didn't tell him what the or else was, but it's really easy to figure out. He's got another friend, very close friend, who's a house church pastor. And just a few months back, that man disappeared. He just disappeared. Uh, and then it was discovered that he had been placed in prison. For how long? No one knows. Hey, but that's happening to people, believers, our fellow believers around the world all the time. Church, we need to uh, pay attention to this. It matters. Why? Well, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, but now there are many members of the body or our family, but there's just one body itself. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And church, we live in a place that's relatively comfortable. We need to understand and acknowledge and empathize with what's actually happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. How do we do that? Well, the best and most direct way is that we can pray for the persecuted church. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3 says this, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and those who are ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. On November 6th of this year is a national day of prayer for the persecuted church. And I want, you to encourage, I want to encourage you to get informed about what's happening with the persecuted church so you can pray for the persecuted church. There are a couple newsletters that I get. One is uh, from Voice of the Martyrs. 
Another's from Open Doors Ministries. And it, what they do is they profile the, the countries where persecution is occurring. They profile believers in those places. They advocate for believers who are being persecuted with their governments and with our governments. But it informs us. And I, and I get those newsletters so that I will pay attention to what's happening because I get so absorbed in my own world and it doesn't even cross my mind when I drive up to this building to worship that in some places the doors have been locked and the pastor's in prison. And I want to be aware and I want to learn how to pray. Right? Pray for the church. If you're like me, you, you do wonder <laughs> from time to time, well, what exactly, what, is, what can that do? Theologically, I, I, you know, I'm, I have limited understanding. I'm not exactly sure why the sovereign God who knows all things and is, control of the, is in control of the universe urges us to pray or even urges us to share our faith, but God has promised us that I'm going to act through your prayers. I'm going to act through your courage as you share your faith. I'm going to act through these things. That's how I choose to act. Even though I've set the course of history, history and I know all things, I'm going to choose to act through you. And he's given us a few little glimpses in scriptures to how that works and how we participate. Uh, Daniel is one of my favorites. Remember the prophet is, is praying and he's fasting fervently. He's asking for an answer from the Lord about end times. He's asking God, God, what's happening with my nation through whom you will establish your kingdom? And when will things move and change and transpire? And he's praying and he's fasting and he doesn't get an answer. And you know what? He probably is a little bit discouraged and he wants to stop praying because the answer doesn't come. You ever felt that before? But he continues on in prayer and he prays and he prays and he prays for day after day, day after day. And then one day an angel shows up and he says, Daniel, sorry I'm late. Right, that's Hebrew. He says, Daniel, sorry I'm late, but I was in a battle. The prince of Persia. I was in a battle with a, a satanic force who is trying to influence the hearts and minds of people in another nation and governments over another nation. He's trying to influence them to hate God. And I was in battle with him for the hearts and minds of these people and these governing authorities. And the battle was so intense that I couldn't leave until you prayed and God dispatched more angelic forces to come to my aid so I could come and answer your question, Daniel. In other words, for some reason... When we pray, God has said, I will dispatch angelic forces to work alongside the church and with the church for the hearts and the minds of peoples and even governments. So pray. Do we see exactly what's happening in the heavenly realm when we pray? No, we do not. We don't. But God's given us a little glimpse through people like Daniel. So this is, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Another illustration in the book of Acts, chapter 12, uh, Peter was imprisoned for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he slept in prison, he was chained between two prison guards. But the church stayed up all night praying for Peter. Praying for his safety, praying for his life, praying for his deliverance. Peter was asleep and an angel came up and kicked him in the side and said, Peter, get up. Thought he was dreaming, but the chains fell off, and the angel said, follow me. So he just began to walk, following the angel. The gates open to the prison. The gates open out of the city. He goes uh, to, to a home. He realizes, I guess I wasn't actually dreaming. That was an angel coming in response to the prayers of God's people, and I'm, I'm free. Right? And Remember, he knocks on the door, 
knocks on the door and nobody answers. And then the servant girl comes and he says, it's me, Peter, let me in. And she's so stunned that God actually answered the prayer that she doesn't open the door. She runs away and says, it's Peter. No, it's not Peter. Well, if it's Peter, let him in, let him in. God responds to the prayers of his people. Pray for the church. Right? Pray that the church would remain strong in the midst of, pers- of, of suffering and persecution. Pray that they would have endurance. Pray that the gospel would go out even in their sufferings. Pray for the church. And I would uh, exhort you, uh, get prepared for persecution here. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It may not be as intense here now as it is in other places of the world, but church in America, I think that you should get prepared. We should be prepared. In 1990, about uh, 8 or 9% of the American population declared itself uh, non-religious or atheist. 2014, that number was 30%. We live in a culture that is increasingly indifferent or hostile to God, and we should expect that persecution will increase. How do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves? Well, first, I'd say learn from those who endure. Okay, learn from the example of those who have gone before us. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy, pay attention to my example. Paul took the Thessalonian church, and everywhere he went, he said, you know, I hold you Thessalonians up as an example of endurance with joy in the midst of persecution. Follow their example. Follow my example. Learn from them. Uh, I will tell you, one of the the greatest influences on my spiritual life has been missionary biographies. I brought just a few of them that I really love if you want to come up and get some titles afterwards. Uh, But some of them that I've loved the most through Gates of Splendor, story of Jim Elliott. Fantastic book. Uh, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom's story of hiding uh, Jews during World War II. George Mueller, uh, this whole series is put out by YWAM. It's by Janet and Jeff Bengi. Uh, I've probably read 20 of these out of this series. This is phenomenal, right? And it's not written at a really, really difficult level. This is a great, I enjoy them myself, but this is written at a level too that your kids would love to read. So the whole series on that is good. Uh, Heavenly Man, Brother Yoon, Chinese house church pastor. A biography of James Hudson Taylor. This is one of the older versions, and it's now out of print, but I think this is the best, right? This is by his grandson, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Howard Taylor, wrote this. This is a fantastic one. And then, uh, first, uh, a missionary sent from North America, Adoniram Judson. This is called To the Golden Shore. Absolutely great. I cannot overstate the influence of uh, biographies in my spiritual life. I mean, I love them. The other thing that my parents did was anytime missionaries came to our church, they would invite them over for dinner. I mean, I I promise you, every missionary that our church supported when I was growing up had a meal in my parents' home, and we would get to ask them about their lives. And some of them were undergoing persecution. Some of them had just made great sacrifices to be in a place where the gospel was, was not being heard. And it was, it was really influential for me as a child to hear those stories, to see real-life flesh-and-blood people living not for themselves, but living for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's powerful. Church, get prepared. Right? Learn from those 
who are making these sacrifices or those who did in the past. Second, consider your response to persecution ahead of time. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts again, chapter 16. In verse 35, Acts 16, verse 35, this is at the end of an incident when uh, Paul was in prison, actually, in, uh, in Philippi, and uh, the, the jailer, the, there was an earthquake, and the jailer and all of the other prisoners uh, believed in Jesus through that process. Now, this is the end of the story, verse 35, it says, now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men, and the jailer reported These words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. It's great news, right? But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and they've thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And they came and they appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And when out of the prison, they entered the house of Lydia. When they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they departed. In this case, Paul used the laws of that land to create protection, not just for himself, because he'd already received his beating, but for future believers, so that they would have the freedom to share the gospel. Paul used the justice system of that day to create protection. And sometimes God will call us to do that in our own country or for, to advocate for believers in others, other countries to push back and say, no, let the gospel go forth. However, there were also many times when Paul did not claim earthly rights, so to speak. Instead, he would say to the Romans, he would say, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, bless them. Turn to the book of Matthew Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That means that you're his children, so be like him. This is what your Father is like. And you can reflect his personality, his care, his concern. You will be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect or mature or complete, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. You you want to reflect the heart of God? Well, wisdom would say there are times when you stand up to protect those rights, and then there will be times when, as Jesus did, that he was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. Instead, he just blessed, and he looked down from the cross and didn't declare the injustice against him. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Or as Paul says to Timothy, these men are not only deceiving, but they are being deceived. Have mercy. Think about that ahead of time. Whether that persecution comes in the form of, hey, you might not get tenure for that job if you stand up for Jesus Christ. Or your family may reject you or slap you or hit you or write you out of an inheritance. What's your response going to be? Where would wisdom direct you? 
Third, understand the value of a tested faith. Turn back just one chapter, or a few verses back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Matthew 5 verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says rejoice. And the apostles, when they were persecuted in the book of Acts, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're blessed. They had this sense of solidarity with Jesus Christ who had suffered so that life could be given to the world. Paul tells us there is meaning and there is value even when our faith is tested and we suffer, we're persecuted. In fact, he would tell the Philippian believers, because of my imprisonment, there are other people who watch my example and now they have courage to preach the gospel so the gospel is not imprisoned. In fact, because of my imprisonment, the gospel is going out even more. And what we see throughout the world for the church is sometimes where persecution is the greatest, the gospel is the most powerful because people see the church suffering but suffering with joy and they have courage to believe in Jesus Christ. Prepare ahead of time. Pray for the church. Now before we apply this, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you one other short video that I think puts, puts persecution in perspective for us and gives us some idea about how we can stand with the persecuted church and pray for the church. And just one more short video for you. They see us and they will cry for us. They will say, oh, those poor people, they are living in miserable condition. Yes. But believe me, I, myself, and my family, you will see the joy inside us. Because we are believers, he gives us a lot. And then he took it away by the evil hands. I don't hate them. I don't hate uh, ISIS. I pray for them, to God, to play with their hearts, to change their minds. I pray for everyone. Jesus, give them a time to know him. All this happened It is not for nothing. There is something behind it. As the clock gives a bell to wake up to your work. Wake up for what? To serve each other. To love each other. I'm sure it is the time of waking up. Waking up. Waking up. Church, what I'd like for us to do is um, just to take a few moments now and uh, pray specifically for the persecuted church. Uh, Brother Andrew, who used to smuggle Bibles into former Soviet Union, he said this, Our prayers can go where we cannot. There are no borders, no prison walls, no doors that are closed to us when we pray. So if you'd like to get with a a few other people around you, take a few moments to pray, or if you feel 
uh, like you'd just like to pray on your own, that's great. We're just going to take a few moments uh, just to begin to pray for the persecuted church. A few things that you can pray for. Pray for the salvation of the persecutors. When you ask persecuted believers what they want you to pray for first, consistently they say, pray for those who are persecuting us, that they would know Jesus. Pray for endurance of the church in really harsh places and protection of their lives so that the gospel can continue to go out. Okay, let's just take a few moments quietly to pray, and then we'll close our service together. Father, we thank you that we know the one who uh, conquers and the one who will establish his kingdom, the one who is the victor over our enemy. We thank you, Father, that he dwells beside us and walks with us. We thank you, Father, that we worship the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is not only risen but is also returning. Father, I pray that even as we may suffer for our faith in ways small and large, that we would love Jesus more than we love life itself. We'd love Jesus more than we love the approval of men. Love Jesus more than we love comfort and ease. Father, that you would knit our hearts uh, with those who are suffering even more extremely in the world today, just because they love Jesus. Pray, Father, that we would stand with them and we would see the value of entering into this warfare through our prayer. Father, I thank you for this moment for, for your spirit just to open our eyes again, to wake us up again to the battle that's raging all around us and the opportunity that we have to speak the words of life, the only words of life, through your Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week doing warfare for the kingdom of God. See you next week.